I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, it's Kasia Mihailovic. I'm taking over Canada Land today, and I wanted to ask, if you like what we're doing, to please consider joining us at canadalandshow.com slash join. It's a really easy way to contribute to our show on a monthly basis to keep us going. It takes two minutes, and you'll get an ad-free version of Canadaland straight to your device every week. Or you can send us a one-time contribution of any amount to support at canadalandshow.com. Thank you. Eva Holland is scared. Scared of driving, scared of heights, scared of death. She wrote a book about it titled Nerve, chronicling her fears and phobias and the science behind them. But it's also a book about her attempts to become fearless through state-of-the-art therapies, strategies, and medications. Eva's examination of fear is suddenly newsworthy and universal. Now we are all scared, shitless. But Eva's investigation into fear isn't just about how to overcome or conquer fear. It's about why we need fear and how fear keeps us alive. I'm Kasia Mihailovic, and I reached Eva Holland in Whitehorse, where she lives. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by David Helps, Greg Newman, Ian Campbell, Megan Eichhorn, Adam Kaplan, Say Choi, Pam McDonald, and Mayor Ngomessier. This is Mayor Ngomessier, Ottawa resident, former United Nations official who has just started a new gig building a political economy advisory, but most of all, grumpy dad and uncle. I support Canada Land because having as much of the full story as possible requires a strong independent news media source which complements the regular news industry perspective. But also because Jesse and the rest of the team's brainy snarkiness is cute. My mom died suddenly from a stroke in July 2015. And I had always been really afraid of my mom dying in a kind of more acute way than the average kid, I think, because she had lost both her parents when she was quite young. And I was very keenly aware of the the sort of devastating long-term impact of that on her life. So when she died, it was like my worst fear coming true. But after I came through the first 
sort of few months of, of really intense grief, I realized that I wasn't being affected in the same ways that she had been in terms of, you know, like a lingering depression and that sort of thing. And it was sort of empowering to realize that I had kind of come through my worst fear and survived it in a way um, that I hadn't yeah. anticipated. So that made me think about my relationship to fear more broadly um, and whether it might be more negotiable than I had thought. I had a long-standing, um, pretty significant fear of heights. And, uh, and this kind of empowered me to think about whether I could maybe try to tackle it or, or alter it, you know, like cure or conquer is often the language that we use with regards to fear. And I had a panic attack on an ice climbing trip about six months after my mom died. And it was sort of the worst heights related panic attack I had ever experienced. And, and that was kind of a trigger to be like, okay, this isn't acceptable. You need to do something about this situation. At that point, it was still a personal project. And then um, two months later, I had a the last in a series of serious car accidents that left me with some some psychological issues around driving and basically a, fe a fear of driving in ice or snow right which uh you know i live in the yukon so that's like eight months of the year of driving um, yeah <laughs> i mean i feel like i have to stop you here because when people hear oh i have to conquer my fear of heights so i can go ice climbing <laughs> in the yukon you know some people might say like or yeah don't go ice climbing <laughs> Yeah, it's, I guess a lot of it is related to my lifestyle here. Some of that is connected to my career, you know, being somebody who writes about this stuff, I, I have to be able to get at least partway up a mountain, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And part of it is social here in my community in Whitehorse. This is what people do. I didn't, I didn't want to miss out on every, I, I wasn't um, determined to become like a great rock climber or anything, but to not be able to participate at all in sort of like steep activities, whether that's steeper hiking or climbing or mountain biking. I mean, that's what people do here. Right. Um, at least that's what, that's what my circle does. And so it was, it felt potentially pretty isolating not to be able to improve the situation. And I probably wouldn't have felt that way if I was still living in Ottawa where I grew up, I would have had more options that didn't involve vertical terrain. Right. <laughs> So the book is a bit of a journey into trying out different therapies that might help you overcome these fears. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about what I have in my mind called the Dutch pill. I, I was just, I totally did not believe you when I started reading this part of the book. Like I did not think this existed. So tell us about the Dutch pill. Right. So there's a clinical psychologist in Amsterdam, Dr. Meryl Kint. What she does is she triggers your fear, your phobia, almost to like as much as you can take, you know, they told me they'd have to try to get me to an 80 or 90 on a scale of a hundred. So they scare the crap out of you. And then while you're scared and these old pathways are triggered and your memories are active of being afraid in this way many times before they give you this pill, beta blockers prevent protein synthesis in our brains. And it's only fairly recently that they've figured out that protein synthesis in is involved not only when we store long-term memories for the first time, but when we recall them from storage, as it were, and then put them away again. Mm -hmm. So if you block the protein synthesis, you disrupt that storage process. It sounds totally sci-fi, but she scares you, and then she gives you this pill, and somehow it's like it decouples your fear memories and your fear reaction from each other. So if it works, 
the next time you're exposed to your fear stimulus, you don't react the way you always have before. She's getting kind of remarkable results. It works best for pretty straightforward phobias. I know she's trying to adapt it for more like PTSD treatments, and it's it's harder because that's such a more complex fear stimulus. But if for something like a, a fear of snakes or a fear of mice or spiders, it seems to be working really, really well. And so I went to Amsterdam to attempt to have my fear of heights cured in this way. So you go up in this cherry picker with the firemen to get you to that 80 to 90 on the scale, and it sounds terrifying. You come down, you take this pill, and then the next day you go up again. And can you explain how you felt that second time? I won't say I felt completely fine because when I got in the bucket again, I was nervous because I was, I was nervous about whether or not it would have worked. But I was not, I didn't have that sort of gut-churning, sickening feeling I'd had the day before. And then we went up and, and I kept waiting to panic the way I had the day before. And I, I didn't, it was just, it was just gone. And I ended up like laughing and taking selfies. I could, (laughs) I could look around, I could look down, Wow. you know, whereas the day before when I, when I got out of the bucket, I could barely walk. My knees were shaking so hard. It was pretty remarkable. The whole thing was extremely surreal. I guess I wondered if that's ever disconcerting for you that that you can, I don't know, trick your brain or treat your brain in such a way that suddenly the memories that used to have this emotional resonance for you just don't. I have experienced it only as relief. I can still remember how upsetting those car accidents were. You know, like those memories are unaltered. They just can't grab me by the throat anymore. Mm -hmm. They don't, they don't control me anymore. So I can see how it sounds weird to kind of like mess with your memories. There's something very unsettling about that um, in the abstract. But in my personal experience, it's, it's been nothing but relief. You know, if I want to dwell on it, I can still think about how horrible I felt during those car accidents. But the difference now is that only comes up when I summon it. It doesn't jump up and grab me when I'm when I'm trying to navigate a highway anymore that I'm suddenly remembering, you know, what it felt like to be hanging upside down from my seatbelt. One of the structures in the brain that's really important for fear is the I'm going to I'm going to try saying this amygdala. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. So the amygdala is an important part of all of this. Um I wanted to talk about patient SM, mm-hmm. the woman who has a rare genetic disease. Her amygdala was destroyed by the disease, I guess. So patient SM is, nobody knows exactly who she is except the scientists who have worked with her over the years. Her her identity is a secret uh, to protect her privacy, but she has this rare disease called Urbaquita. Among other things, it attacks your brain and seems to particularly attack the amygdala. A lot of people who with Urbac-Beta have sort of partially damaged amygdalas. Mm-hmm. Patient SMs is sort of perfectly damaged. Like insurgents speak, the margins are, are almost perfect. It's sort of been perfectly destroyed with almost no other tissue affected around it. And that's been the case since she was about 10 years old. So she can remember being afraid before age 10, but not really since. That's because the amygdala is a brain structure that receives sensory input, receives information about possible threats from our various senses and assesses them and makes sort of makes a judgment call about is this a threat or not and then triggers our fear response, which is, you know, like what we often call a fight or flight response. 
it's this kind of gatekeeper and triggering mechanism. And so without that being operational, it's she doesn't react with fear to things. She has the full range of emotion otherwise, but she essentially, with a couple of exceptions that I talk about in the book, she essentially can't be scared. Yeah. And that sounds, you know, we talk about fearlessness, like it's something to be sought out. You know, that's a compliment. She's so fearless. Yeah. But it turns out the reality of, of true fearlessness is, is really grim. She's had a really hard life and she's really lucky to still be alive. A scientist years ago removed the amygdalas from a group of monkeys and set them loose in the wild and they were all dead in two weeks. And why is that? Because fear exists to keep us alive. Patient SM sometimes forgets to eat. She's not great with money. She has no sense of personal danger at all. So she has been, you know, beaten and assaulted and, and strangled over the years. She's had a gun held to her head. Often by people that she was in relationships with. Yeah, she had a, a really, really dark relationship history with men who treated her really badly. And she had no sense of, of self-preservation. Not that, you know, of course, people stay with people who treat them badly for all sorts of reasons. But in her case, it's a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was really touched by what I learned about her life. You know, even down to she has trouble keeping friends because she comes on too strong because she has no guardrail. She has no fear of, of rejection. She, if she likes you, she's like, you know, let's be friends. And it was interesting to think about the ways that fear sort of subtly works through our social lives, for instance. I'd never thought about that before. Yeah, I guess I thought of it as so sad because, um, you know, when we imagine ourselves as fearless and not afraid of rejection, we imagine ourselves as stronger. I wonder if she had been like a man, how it would have played out differently in the society that we have now. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. And I, I could be wrong, but I think that the two German twins that I write about in the book who also have Rebecca and have very limited use of their amygdalas, I think that they are female as well. I could be wrong. They are, yeah. Yeah, okay. I just so, read that again today. Uh, thank you. Um, so <laughs> that's interesting. I wonder if the fearless men aren't making it to adulthood. <laughs> I know. I did wonder that because maybe it would, you know, the way that our gendered behavior acts out would make them more likely to be acting out, to be the violent actor as opposed to be the one who has violence acted upon them. Mm -hmm. It seems like a, a tough task to be able to conquer your fears while living in a world that is full of things to be afraid of. Since you have been able to diminish your fear, say, of, of driving, how does that play into the way you drive now? And do you ever worry about going you know, too far the other way? Yeah, that's interesting. I, With driving specifically, I don't worry at all about going too far the other way. I... I remain a significantly more cautious driver than I was before the accidents and the therapy. Even mm -hmm. cautious on the spectrum up to nervous. I'm, I'm, frankly, I drive like a grandma now. Um, yeah, I mean, um, and just yeah. to break in again, because yeah. uh, we haven't said it before, you, you, you mentioned you had a series of accidents, and they all seemed really bad, like car flipping over. It was, it was scary even to read the accounts of them. Yeah, I had four car accidents that I think could have killed me. Jeez. Through luck, none of them even came close to killing me in terms of physical damage. But they all were 
total write-offs for the vehicles I was in. <laughs> Not that it takes yeah. that much to write off a vehicle anymore, but they were all really dangerous accidents. Um, yeah, even the one just where you you kind of got broadsided by one of those U-Haul vans, big mirrors, and it, it took out your windshield um, because a guy was not paying attention to the road you wrote about how afterwards you felt like you couldn't even really be upset about it because nothing had actually happened but you know having read everything you wrote about how memory imprints in you it makes perfect sense that you would feel trauma from a near miss like that because you know i I've, i i thought about this moment where i was crossing the street and i didn't realize it was two ways and i heard this honk and i turned my head completely the other direction that I hadn't looked at at all and there was an SUV like 10 feet away with a guy who just slammed on the brakes and was yelling at me because I basically walked into traffic Ugh. and nothing happened but I actually think about that moment I I've thought about it crossing the street and it gives me this like the kind of full body chill that I had the first time it, it happened for months afterwards I would think about it and it's this near miss that you had that kind of is the first of these four big accidents um, that that really stuck with me the most in a way because it was most relatable. Mm -hmm. In the in the optimal world, you don't want to be either too anxious or too reckless. You want to be somebody who makes sort of clear-eyed choices about risk. That's the best case scenario: is that you use your fear to understand what's going on and to have control and to get away from dangerous situations. But at the end of the day, you know it doesn't stop terrible things happening. Was there anything to be learned about confronting the terrible things that you're afraid of are going to happen and, and happen anyway? Yeah, control does run through my book and it's useful to a point, but it, it's also something that at a point you have to let go of. And part of what I, the conclusion I came to in the end is that I have to accept that there are going to be things that scare me, you know, and scary things will happen and bad things will happen. And that's not something I can prevent no matter how much I learn and how much I practice and how much therapy I go to. Um, mm -hmm. So there's there's control and then there's acceptance. And, and in some ways, those are sort of two, I guess, opposite sides of the same coin. In the end, I know I'm, there are going to be things that scare me in future, but I'll be better equipped now to, to move through those, whether that means uh, sussing out a threat and avoiding it or whether it means just sort of living through a fearful thing happening and, mm -hmm. and sorting myself out afterwards I'm I'm better equipped now to do that yeah and I just wanted to ask you and we, um, if today is an okay day to ask you about your mom yeah sure yeah thanks for asking um, before your mom died do you think that the fear of your mom dying or or generally of a fear of a parent dying is a fear that can be lessened or overcome with some of the therapeutic interventions or some of the like understanding of brain chemistry that you investigate in the book? Oh, that's such an interesting question. I, I think that the fear of our loved ones dying is so fundamental. I'm not sure that any amount of theoretical information prepares you for it. Hmm. I do feel like having lost my mom, I'm now better able to deal with future future grief, future losses. They scare me less now. It's not something I look forward to, but mm. I sort of know how it works now. And I know that grief is necessary and I know that it's 
something that recedes over time. You know, people can say that to you, it gets better. It doesn't seem true until it has actually come true. So I don't know if that fear specifically is something that you can sort of like think and research your way through. I think that's one that you have to live Mm -hmm. before you sort of get the benefits of, of whatever wisdom you've obtained from the experience. Yeah. And when I was reading your your kind of journey through grief, it's also such an evocative way of, of showing how fear is what makes us human because we do all go through the same types of fears. And I almost love that, you know, you have fears that are so relatable. I guess I'm coming around to the, I'm wondering if I could kind of tie it into the experience we're feeling now in the time of a global pandemic where we're all hiding out. Um, first of all, are, how is Whitehorse or how is that situation for you going f- in your area right now? Like, how do you feel? Are you, are you staying at home or? Yeah, I've been home apart from a daily walk or run for uh, 14 days was my, I think my last errand. <laughs> so I am going to do some errands later today. Um, try, yeah. try to stack them up. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, I've been thinking in the last couple of weeks that as much as some of my research into how fear works might be applicable now, I think the the grief aspect of the book is is really applicable too for a lot of people. And I've been thinking about that side of things a lot for myself and for others. Whitehorse so far is in good shape. Right. We have only a handful of confirmed cases here. No, no in-community transmission. Everything's still connected to people who traveled out of the territory so far. Um, everybody's staying doing a pretty good job of staying home when they can um they were our local authorities were pretty aggressive here in in getting out ahead of of things you know we had a lockdown here maybe a week before our first confirmed case um so so that's good and but it's uh it's a it's a funny place to be in some ways because we are so far away from from everyone and that's a benefit in terms of the isolation to try to stop transmission but it's we're a small place with one real hospital and a small number of beds. And, and uh, so it's, it's, it can feel vulnerable at the same time as our isolation is a bit of a protection. I've been feeling okay lately. The first couple weeks, I would say I was feeling a lot of anxiety and, and dread, but I kind of reminded myself that I know how this works. And yeah, people I love might die and that will be horrible and sad and I'll grieve. And then I'll come out the other side eventually. And I know that in terms of being precise with language, it is maybe fair to say that this is both, we all have a lot of anxiety and fear, and it might be fair to say that this is kind of a trauma we're all enduring together. Absolutely. And it kind of hit me when your friend talked about Dead Parents Club, like we're all at the end of this going to be in like post, we lived through the coronavirus the way that people lived through the depression. It is it is like a shared trauma that we'll all have. And I wonder what you think about how this might alter us. I guess maybe how we might think about this fear that we're all going through and how we might use it or endure it or learn something from it on the other side of this that would be useful. Part of my brain is totally fascinated to see what changes after this. I think right now a lot of us are picturing that it'll be like VE day after World War Two, like this will end and we'll all sort of like make out in the streets. <laughs> you know? But I, I don't 
think that's how it's going to be. I don't, Mm. I think we will be more tentative than that for at least a while. I think it's possible that some people will have, you know, some lingering fears of, of crowds and contact for a long time. I think a lot about my, you know, my grandmother who lived through the the depression and had a pantry full of canned goods her whole life. You know, am I going to be like that after this? Am I going to be like, you know, I, I got caught with half a bag of flour and half a bag of rice when this started. Am I, am I going to like make sure I have like one of those 10 pound bags of rice in my, in my cupboard for the rest of my life? (laughs) Like, right, exactly. Part of it will depend on how this all plays out ultimately. Oh God. I think that a return to whatever we call normal will be gradual and in fits and starts. And, and I think some of us will be nervous about certain things for a long time. I do imagine rather than a V8, like a parade, more like people crawling out of caves and blinking in this newly bright light <laughs> called the sun. Totally. I think that's probably, that's me. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Um, but I also am struck by how in your book you talk about how the your reaction in the moment primes you for the way the fear alters you going forward, how the memory is made. And to me, it gave me kind of a practical takeaway about how to manage fear in this time, such that you could maybe, if you can, if you have the privilege and the, you know, whatever luck you might have to lessen the trauma going forward, and that it is important to kind of look the fear in the eye now, rather than avoid it. Trauma is something that we've come sort of shamefully late to grappling with in lots of ways. And one thing that they know now is that part of your reaction to traumatic memories later is about how they played out in the moment. So the car accident where I sort of was like, oh, this is going to be fine. I'm spinning out, but it's, it's going to be fine. I'm going to hit a snowbank and stop. That one did not affect me as much as the one where I was like, I'm going to die, you know? And, mm-hmm. and even though they were more or less equal in severity in terms of what happened to the car and what happened to you know, the muscles in my neck, one of them impacted me psychologically way more. And it was the one where I was terrified. It's sort of, it's a hard thing to apply because it's like, well, how do I control my terror to <laughs> like prevent future trauma? You know, it's, it's, but it is an interesting thing to know that our reaction in the moment can have consequences later. And maybe even if that doesn't help us control our reaction in the moment, knowing it can help you later to understand that what you're being terrorized by is, is your own fear as much as anything else. Yeah, because in this moment, I mean, if you follow the rules and you are trying to, you are using all the precautions that you need to use in this time, it's the fear that can really overtake you. And in, in that way, it's kind of like a slow moving car crash. Yeah. That you don't know how it's going to end. And it's hard to control your reaction, but it is playing out over weeks. And now we're going to get into months. And there might be some space for checking in and being able to wrangle with some of the fear. I guess one of the big things about the book is that looking at fear doesn't actually make you more afraid. Yeah, so fear can be a a feedback loop for sure. And I think understanding that can help to be a way out of it. And I I do think that applies to this moment where we're, I think a lot of people are sort of waiting for bad news. You know, there's already a lot of bad news, but many individuals 
particularly in Canada, where we're just kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. And that's a that's a horrible space to live in, to be lying awake at night worrying about your loved ones and your family and, and yourself and your job. Yeah, I think if, if people could come to our houses right now and, and test like our hormone levels, I think like a lot of people's stress hormones would be through the roof. Yeah. And that's not a that's not a good space to live in. So if there's ways that we can sort of do whatever it is you do that loosens that anxiety tightness in your chest. If that's going for a walk or meditating, or I've I've taken up adult coloring books, which I never thought I would do, but it's honestly helping so much. Uh, I think that that can help hopefully mitigate the long-term consequences as well. I'm baking bread like the rest <laughs> of the basics. Um, ah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm terrible at it. Wow. Eva, thank you so much. Thank you. This was great. That was your Canada Land. If you like the show, you can get it ad-free for five bucks a month by clicking on the link in the show notes. As always, you can email my boss at jesse at canadalandshow.com. He reads them all and sometimes he forwards them to us and we'd like to hear your thoughts. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is at canadalandshow.com. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton, and I'm senior producer Kasia Mihailovich. I'm also the host and reporter of Cool Mules. It's the latest Canada Land show. It's the story of a vice editor's rise through the ranks of both that media company and an international drug smuggling conspiracy. That's Cool Mules. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. In France, in the 13th century, a teenager ascends the throne. He seems calm, collected, and as it happens, drop-dead gorgeous. But looks can be deceiving, and no one is ready for the death, destruction, and chaos that lie ahead. Step inside the reign of one of the Middle Ages' most cold-blooded rulers on This Is History presents The Iron King. Available wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com